How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Star Show Podcast, episode 80. 80. 80, the big 8 zero. 8 zero. You know what I thought this morning? I was like, you know, it's time for me to start finding quotes related to the numbers. Okay. Like a film quote, and it'll be like, oh, 80 something, and, and I forgot to do that, so now I'm on the spot. So what you're saying is <laughs> you had an idea, didn't execute it, and now you're addressing the lack of drive you had to discover said idea <laughs> exactly no but that's make it. the content but that's okay jake lack of content. <laughs> because how are you doing i'm all right it's what was last week we did king of staten island last week we did it was fun um yeah <laughs> that's my week <laughs> <laughs> to be honest unfortunately my week has been uh Kind of all over the place, so I have only managed to get the film of the weekend, so unfortunately this Damn. first part of the show, for me, is seriously light. I've been doing Very nothing brief. but pretty much re-watching How I Met Your Mother, so that's kind of just in the background, but mm. yeah, I've had quite a bit of uni stuff to do, uh, working too, and yeah, just, been, boy. just been busy all around. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I feel like... It's interesting because I haven't seen How I Met Your Mother, and it, it, I didn't mention it last week because I think it predates last podcast. But when I was over your house, one of the last times, because I'm at your house a lot, Zeke. Yes, I always like it, and uh, it was on. It was on your TV, the How I Met Your Mothers. And, yes, uh, I was watching it. And my boy Brian, my boy Brian Cranston, he was was in, he was it, in it. So it's was, a it's yeah. a pretty fun show. It's an easy show, popcorn show. Yeah, exactly. It seems like a fun enough sitcom. Yeah, well, exactly. We, we went on a bit of a hiatus with the office, me and my family. But uh, last night we we uh, fixed that up. We started watching more Office. But, right. Yeah. What season are you up to? Uh, I'm still like halfway through the fifth season, mm-hmm. which is good. I feel like it fell off a little with the fourth. Like it just wasn't as funny, but it's it sort of picked back up, which is good. I don't know if I'm laughing so much because like I'm with my family and we're all having a good time. I don't know if that's part of the enjoyment. Yeah. I'm sure it is, but. It's an authentically funny show. So. No, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah. I I think it's a show I've got to give the time of day eventually. But Yeah, eventually, I feel like. i got to watch the UK version at some point, and it's way mm. shorter. It's like the equivalent of like half a season of the US version. Crazy. Like the entire series, yeah. So i got to do it at some point. But um, no, I'm kind of with you. Very light week. For, well, actually, it was a light week bar... Film of the week related stuff. Of course, it's mm. a director's corner. So you're, yeah, you're going to bring that into the second half of the show rather than the first half. Yeah, I'll bring a lot of it because a lot of it was like short films and stuff from from my boy PTA. Yes. So um, I'll talk about that. I guess in relation to, mm-hmm. I guess I'll list through some of it. The other thing I talked about it last week is I finally started watching *Effers for Family*. Yes. So I'm two seasons into that now. So mm-hmm. basically, half enjoying it. Uh, yes, I am. Second season drops off a bit though, right? Uh, I didn't notice, like, a drop in quality. I appreciate, like, the narrative flow that they're going for because, you know, they're building on a story and there's mm. arcs and each character's going for their own thing. So I like all of that stuff. I think it's just consistently funny enough. Like, Yeah, it's, it's definitely... There's never a moment where I feel like I'm losing my, like, self-laughing. Right. But okay. I do get chuckles, for sure. Yeah, yeah, there's a few chuckles in there. It's I, I wouldn't... Like, even BoJack, as serious as that show gets, I usually laugh a lot watching that show. Mm. So, it's hard for me to compare it to what I would consider, like, AT animation. But I, I, A-tier, not, like, mm. 80, which is the episode title. Yeah. Or the episode number, rather. 
Um, no, I do appreciate it from the narrative perspective and Bill Burr's voice. I think his voice comes through really well. Yeah. In terms of the suburban father and, and the shit that he has to deal with versus like the kid version of what was clearly mm-hmm. him and that, that, that whole relationship I think really comes through nicely. And even just the fact that it takes place in 1973, I, th- I guess it would be 74 now because they've passed Christmas. Yes. But um, just that mid-70s vibe, I like that it's very consistent. Like you always know it's the mid-70s watching that show. Well, yeah, from almost like it's where it makes fun of the time and some of the certain like, you know, you know, there was a lot of uh, sort of like racism in that time and yeah, sort of joking yeah, about just... sort of some of the kind of the, the short-sightedness of that time. Yeah, exactly. Even like Bill Burr's character or Frank, there's a lot of stuff that he's not quite aware of and he, like, he gets like overly scared when he's in sort of this, this rough neighborhood in one of the earlier episodes. But even just like the fact that the kids are always out playing like, you kind of forget that that's what it was. And me, now that like, I relish in the fact that I never leave my house, so... Yeah. I kind of forget that <laughs> kids actually like leaving the house at some point. Yes, they do. Lives. So, um, no, I just... It, just stuff like that, those little details. I was like, yeah, that... There are other... And I'll, I'll give it to Better Call So I love that show. But you forget that it is technically a period show. Because that takes place 2002, 2004... Mm-hmm. And you kind of forget, and every now and then they pull out a cell phone, you're like, oh yeah, this isn't like modern, modern, but, um, so I'll give efforts for family, props for that. The only thing, and I'll talk about it more next week, because I'll surely be, like, up to date with the whole series by then. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, like like you said, it sort of picks up a bit more in the first yeah, season. Yeah, uh, second season is, my, in my opinion, the weakest of the okay. four. So, um, it would probably go, probably one, four, three, two. Interesting. I think. I think the last season was really good. I thought the third season was really good, too. I'd probably say even actually the third and fourth season might be better than the first, but... Okay, that would be good. I, I think I probably like the second more than the first, just just because I feel like animation always has that rough start. Like, yeah. There's always, like, you have to establish the characters, and they're they're a little more sort of stereotypical in I episode think, one than they are in episode Yeah, I think the, the jokes in the first season are more context-driven, like they make fun of the time rather yeah. than... The actual comedy between the, the characters. The situation, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think that shift happens slowly over the second season and really finds its pace in the third season. Cool. Well, I'm looking. I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, no worries. Case. So I'll talk about it more in, in next week's podcast, I suppose. Uh, the one thing I just want to make a little quick prediction before I move on. Okay. Is so you got a more uh, Maureen or the daughter character? Yes. And I like that they're playing up her tomboy nature, or mm-hmm. that Frank's always saying, like, oh, you can't, you know, women can't be astronauts, that kind of thing. I have a, I have a suspicion that they're going to take that plot line of her being kind of tomboyish really far. And I don't know if they just haven't done it yet by season four. I feel like it could, they could take mm. that idea really far. And okay. I won't, I won't say how or what. I just, it's my prediction. I'm, I'm guessing, I think I know where you're going to go with that. Yeah. Um, they haven't got up to that point yet. Okay, okay. So still a ways to go, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, even even that, like, I think they could take it even further. Say, for example, like, oh, it turns out that she starts having, like, you know, feelings of bisexual, she's gay, or a lesbian, I should say. I think they're going to take it even further than that. That's my prediction. Mm. Which, I, I don't imagine Bill Burbank that guy, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I think... I mean, we're into the fourth season now, and mm. most of the characters haven't aged all that much. You know, they haven't uh, okay. changed in their terms of their animation appearance. But right, so they're they're not like obviously older. It's more like Simpsons in that regard. No, yeah, definitely more Simpsons. Oh, okay, okay. It's no worries. Been, it's been a while since we have a show like that that where they don't age. Mm. So okay, fair enough. 
Um, but yeah, everything else I've watched this week is in regards to our boy, Paul Thomas Anderson. So, I mean, we can decide now, do we want to sort of talk about him in a wider sense? Because a lot of the films that I saw of his in the last week, you've seen most of them. Mm-hmm. But then there's also some that you've seen that I haven't. Uh, Boogie Nights is an example. I'm mm-hmm. very sorry I didn't catch that this past week. That's okay. Um, I opted to watch other films that he did. I was like, oh, more breadth and depth between the two of us. Um, and then I realized, oh, wait, you've already seen Phantom Fred. Yes. Oh, damn. All right, well, now we've both seen Phantom Fred, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a lot of the central catalogue yeah. from him. Um, I'm happy to just use that in the second half of the show because that is technically all related to the director's okay. corner. So if uh, nothing right. else, we could bridge into, do you want to have any quick updates on your career before um, we move the into The one thing I'll quickly say, I think this um, went over a lot of people's heads on the weekend, but what I've decided to do is on the Clicker Productions Facebook page, we're doing a new thing called Hashtag. Everyone loves a good old hashtag. Okay. Hashtag Soaring Saturdays. And what this is is essentially an excuse for me to make like a 40-second video every Saturday mm. regarding either my drone or my GoPro, or just just some of the more unique like film gear that I have. It's just, it's just gonna, a kick in the bum to be like, Jake, use your drone more. <laughs> or use your GoPro more. So I've, It's basically like a little 40-second snippet every... Oh, it was a pretty good uh, sunset, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, a little sunset at Woodman's Point or just off the edge of the island there. So mm. that, was, that was cool. Yeah, and was then fun. you also had more uh, news about x Part 2, um, which you just announced that, right? Did just I? Just on your Instagram, I'm pretty sure. I did. I think I made a blog post on Monday that I think I shared on Wednesday. Okay. I think it was just elaborating more of what I already talked about on the podcast last Yeah, absolutely. Week. Um, yeah. But yeah, Sex Rental Party is coming, so... Yay! <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> no worries. Um, but that's it for me. So, okay, yeah. well, I guess it's time for us to move into our 16th Director's yep. Corner. Ooh. And, Jake, who are we doing? And what are we watching? Who are we doing? Oh. For the Director's Corner. Oh, oh sorry. You got me very confused. This week on the show, we are talking about Paul Thomas Anderson, There Will Be Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Daniel Plainview is a ruthless oil prospector who goes on a relentless pursuit to become the most powerful oil tycoon. And for this, he even resorts to manipulating and using his adopted son. This film was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and is our 16th director's corner. He's a he's a hack. The Simpsons did this first. He's a hack. He's a hack. He's a hack. Mr. You're... Burns did this exact story. How <laughs> dare he? <laughs> did he actually? Uh, in the famous Simpsons episode, the season 6 finale, Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 1? Mr. Burns uh, finds out that there is a huge oil sort of rig under Springfield Elementary, and he uh, goes under a lot of businesses' noses to steal the oil to make a profit. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so you should watch that episode. Yeah. <laughs> there will be Burns. Nah. Uh, okay, so... I'm kidding, he's um, <laughs> Yeah, I would um, very much say that PTA is not a hack. Um, so Fair enough. now it's time for you, before we go into analyzing the film itself, Okay. I will throw it to you. What were the PTA films you watched in the last week? Right. So I watched quite a few. Um, the one thing I want to mention really quickly is that this is something, and this is cool because it plays into our discussion of his direction as a whole, 
is that a lot of the short films you will see that he's done that are listed on Letterboxd, and not even just anima, but like some random ones he threw in there, and I'll grab the titles in a second, are actually just sort of compilation montages of deleted scenes and alternate shots from his feature films. Mm. So, for example, one of the films I watched was Punch Drug Love, and in addition to that, I also watched... uh, Where is it? Here it is. Uh, I also watched a short film he made called Blossoms and Blood, which is basically just alternate takes and different scenes from that feature film. And I thought that was really cool, because he did the same for Phantom Fred, which turned into... uh, For the Hungry Boy, he did the same for The Master, which turned into Back Beyond. So I watched two of those three. I didn't watch the one for The Master, just because I hadn't seen The Master in a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought those were really cool because he, yeah, essentially he's taking clips and bits from the films that he didn't use or he's using voiceovers and using them in different uh, variations. And uh, I actually found those really enjoyable. So I watched a lot of those in addition to, yeah, Drunk Punch Love, uh, Phantom, Fred, and I feel like I watched another one. Oh, There Will Be Blood. That makes sense. There we go. <laughs> and um, So yeah. you, ha- you have watched one that I haven't seen, which is uh, Punch Drunk Love. Right, and I think that might be my favourite film of his. Really? Yeah, I look, I don't think that's a popular opinion, mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, but uh, what I what I love about that film is just his use of the soundscape and the, the, the photography, the way he edits and sort of jump starts. And this is all to do with the anxiety that Adam Sandler's character has in that film. And I didn't find a lot of evidence to prove this. I'm like, he. this is straight up, he's doing autism in this film. And if you read it up, it's not, there's a lot of like, oh, vague, sort of, oh, it's more like fits of anger and social anxiety and all this stuff. Mm. I'm like, no, 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 this, I would know. <laughs> I feel like I would know, and that, that was sort of how I interpreted it. But I thought, I, I don't know, I was just blown away. It's a very, it's one of his only really short films. It's only like 90 minutes long or so. Well, I mean, he's, he's only got nine feature length films. Okay. Listed on Letterbox, so um, you've caught four of them. I think I've caught four because I've caught I mean, neither, five. Neither of us have seen Hard Eight or Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice. And Junin technically qualifies because that's fifty-four minutes. Oh, I see. Yeah, I was wondering where you got the ninth from. That makes sense. Yes, I like that. So probably more accurately, eight strong feature yeah, yeah. films, but nine technically. There you go. The, um, the technicalities are in there, so they say. But um, yeah, so you've seen five of them. So the one, the two you've seen that I haven't seen is Boogie Nights, and um, what's the other one? Magnolia. Magnolia. That's the one. Yes. So what do you think of those two? I feel like they're more punk rocky than his other films. Um, Magnolia is pretty, almost biblical in. Okay. Um, it's a collection of stories that occur, um, as a cataclysmic biblical event occurs um and it's um it's an interesting film i quite enjoyed it um i think my favorite from him the one that's probably the most fun but still one of his strongest that isn't the title film of the episode yeah um is definitely boogie nights is my my close second marky mark um (laughs) people really like the master and i did really enjoy phantom fred but uh, probably out of the five that I have seen, Magnolia would be fifth, I'd say. Interesting. Still good. Like, it has one of the best Tom Cruise performances of his career. Um, and it has a really good Philip Seymour Hoffman um, performance. But I think Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master is stronger than he is in uh, Magnolia. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously haven't seen Magnolia, but his performance in the Masters is incredible. And I think yeah. I need to go back and change my score because I think I gave the Master three stars on Low Box, and I do not. I'm like, man, I need to go back and change that. Yeah, because that film is stuck in my head for a long time. It's like, Whereas uh, I think um, Daniel Day Lewis's performance in There Will Be Blood Phantom. is oh, yeah. significantly better than Phantom Thread. Interesting. Well, I definitely, now that I've seen both of those films, I definitely don't disagree with you, but I love that they are such different performances. Yeah. That well, he's so, he's, I mean, he yells, but he's soft-spoken in Phantom Fred, for example. And he's, he's, he's I mean, they're, they're both got a, a degree of erratic mm. nature to them, but there's a certain charisma that he has in uh, There Will Be Blood that he doesn't have in... Or as it's more, he more acts like a child in Phantom Thread, and I think that mm. that does play into how he can construct art, and yet he's erratic and he acts like a kid, and he really plays off a uh, uh, Vicky Vicky Creeps who plays Alma She's in, great, yeah. in Fred, who I think is a um, it's a different dynamic, obviously, to the Paul Dano. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Um, I see. I, I'm I so some, surprised. I have some stuff to say about Paul Dano in this film, man. Oh my yeah. god! But um, no, I definitely agree with you on that. I honestly, I think out of the four that I've seen, I think Phantom Fred is probably at the bottom. It's also the one I watched the most recently, mm-hmm. just earlier today. Um, it's a great film. It's very well made. I just I wasn't as intrigued by it as like the Master or There Will Be Blood or especially Punch Drunk Love, which I think just the actual filmmaking in that film mm-hmm. is so impressive. And I would say Adam Sandler's better in that film than he is in Uncut Gems. I've said it. Wow. I've said it, everyone. That makes me really want to see Pump Drug Love now. Deal with it. <laughs> it only took 18 so, years between movies, though. That's true. Yeah. Can you I name guess, another film for 17? Because that's a 2019 film, Uncut yeah, Gems. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but you're right. It's a long time. <laughs> long time between really good performances. I guess yeah. funny people you could put in the middle there. That's potentially. true. Funny pe- people you put it in. Men, children, and women. Or men, women, and children, but... That film wasn't amazing. Um, I think the thing I took away from Phantom Fred, even though I don't think it's his best by uh, by a stretch, is this idea of you're right of Daniel Day Lewis's character sort of being obsessed with uh, what's the word I'm looking for like perfectionism. Yeah. But then on top of that, the the thing that he's doing is creating these dresses uh, for these women who sort of have more of an emotional connotation, so that he doesn't see the emotional side of it. That's that was sort of the the clashing that I got from that film, which yeah. I really liked, uh, yeah. and it obviously goes into him and and, and the girl. He, he he's a big fan of his um, two person power trips. Mm. I think that that's a pretty consistent uh, theme. Although there are often often a lot of subsidiary characters, um, I think Magnolia is a great example where there's a there's a plethora of different stories going on. Um, so it's, I don't think it's a it's in all of his films, but it's definitely mm. in a lot. Like you've got There Will Be Blood. It's the dynamic between Dano and and Day Lewis, and then in Phantom Thread, it's Day Lewis and uh, Creeps, and in The Master, it's Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, <sighs> and point. in Punch Drunk Love, you'd probably argue it's probably the female and male leads. Um, I would say it's a different female that the tension's coming from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's interesting because Punch Drug Love is such a different film for him to do in comparison to The Master and Phantom Fred and, and There Will Be Blood, which are very grounded films that I think those films are so enormously praised for their authenticity. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, There Will Be Blood, you're absolutely by the time period, the turn oh, yeah. of the century, sort of post, slightly post-Western sort of area that you're looking at in the South Californian area. 
uh, same with Phantom Fred, where the fact that it's period pieceness is what makes it really great. It's just the costumes and it's the effort. It's that extra yeah, effort. Exactly. And it's, it's not. It's so um, you feel like you're there, and and it's almost like it. These films, even though they are they're epics in this thing. I mean, there mm. will be blood. Is re- it's really long. That is an epic. Yeah. Um, there's not too many really big set pieces. If anything, it's quite mm. grounded at an oil field or it's quite grounded at the mansion or at the church. And then Phantom Thread's the same. I mean, apart from a small expedition to the countryside, it's set in maybe three or four central locations, a diner, a, uh, mm. the, 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 you know, the place where the bridal dresses are made and his, his retreat, are predominantly the main central yeah. three or four set pieces. And in Boogie Nights, he does a very similar thing. He keeps it around Burt Reynolds' like mansion and a couple of little bits and bobs. And out of all of them, that's probably the most contemporary, apart from Punch Trunk Love. So, right. Um, yeah, it's it's a really. I think what it does is it does create that authenticity because he never it never feels like like he never uses anything like green screen backgrounds or like virtual yeah, not, sets. Yeah, not that it's evident, no, for sure. No, no, and I really like that about it. They they do have a certain authenticity. A, a classic Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. And I, I again, that's why I think those films excel so well and so well praised. Mm. And I think with Drunk Punch Love, it again, it's such a different film because it, it's not reliant on that so much. It's because it's contemporary. I think Anderson feels the need to make it a bit more stylistic. And again, it's in service of Adam Sandler's character. Yeah having social issues and sort of the anxiety that he has. But it takes to a whole new level. And it's really fun as well. Like when we talk about the tension between two characters, uh, the tension is really between two characters who are never in the same room together. And there's sort of the love story that's boiling under all of that, which is, I I, I would love for you to watch. I don't think you're going to like it as much as I did. um, Just because I was sort of blown away by what they were doing. And I think it, it doesn't tap the same... Uh, bells that like there will be blood does that i think that film's incredible for a whole completely different reason mm. but i'm curious what you would think yeah uh, so you ready to move more into just the there will be blood territory um, yeah i think so i think the only other thing i don't know if you've seen this have you seen anima the netflix music video that he did no. so i watched this the other night or last night whenever i did and that was really cool from the sense that again it's it's a music video there's a lot of chore- uh, choreography that's going on which I actually got the name. It's Damien... I got it on here. Is it Damien Jell? Uh, Damien Jellet. Oh, okay. Who did the choreography. That would have been a very interesting twist. Yes. So what's his name? that. <laughs> but uh, I loved all of that. Uh, sort of the movement in there and the way he lit those things. Because that's a very surrealism sort of piece mm-hmm. as well that sort of uh, takes these hyper-realistic... Or not even hyper-realistic, like the other way around. Very non-realistic settings, I should say. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of the shapes that he creates, and then the the people who are like doing these dance moves and sort of motioning their bodies in yeah. a certain way, and it, it's a very literal puppeteering of actors, which I've always appreciated, and uh, which you don't really get that sense in his features because like Daniel Day Lewis, he's just doing his thing. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like he's a puppet. It feels like he's being like, here's your character now, be free, do what you need to do to make this a great character. So that's what it feels like, as opposed to Anima, where it, it feels like Anderson was like. You have to move your muscle at this point and this, this time. This, yeah, exactly. Um, so I really appreciated that. But yeah, I'm happy to move into the the main film of the week. Zeke. So Jake, this is your first time watching it. What was the verdict? Um, yeah, I thought it was absolutely excellent. I think I kind of knew going into it like, okay, this is 
Daniel Day-Lewis. The only thing I'd seen of this film prior was, like, it wasn't even outtakes. It was just, like, raw B-roll of them. It was the scene when him and his son are at the dinner table and the, there's the um, the other oil people at the table across, right. which was way later in the film than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this sort of weird outtakes of him sort of breaking character and laughing between doing those scenes, mm-hmm. which was a bit weird to see because he's obviously so intense in this film. Mm. But, um, no, I from his performance to the, just the character dynamics of you, right, of, with Paul Dano and the son especially, having that father-son relationship is so important in this film. I loved it. I really did. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty incredible film. And even from the most, uh, the first 10 minutes, which are predominantly, I think, si- well, not silent, but very uh, yeah, yeah. non-dialogue driven with the sort of like getting the, the first introduction to the oil and, and yeah. how he comes across his son. Um, and it's predominantly not silent cinema, but it's very lacking in dialogue or any sort of like character direction as per mm. se. If uh, At first, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is nothing more than another accessory character to the, the task at hand and only towards the end part of that sort of uh, prologue do we see that mm. the story is definitely about the dynamic between this now baby and and him. Yeah, exactly. If you didn't know who the actor was, for example, you wouldn't know it's his story until he grabs the baby. Exactly. And then you time jump several years. I was surprised by that as how often we time jump, but it was a cool um, ode. Well, there's a lot there, like sort of the, literally the blood is thicker than water anecdote of of family and Mm. sort of what he was, how willing he was to move past the the death of this... uh, seemingly random individual to him and you know sort of the metaphor of the whole blood and the oil and i, I yeah, love it the i love mixing it. of the substances exactly so yeah it's sort of it, it has everything in there in that first 12 minutes that's just like pretty much sums up what you're going to experience for the next two hours two and a half hours even just like the hint of violence mm-hmm. when you see all the stuff fall on the dude in the well you're like oh boy here we go <laughs> so yeah. you're right there's like a there's like a hint of everything you can expect from the rest of the film in that little intro. Uh, the, the only thing I would argue you don't really get a hint of yet is Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Daniel Plainville, just yet, mm-hmm. but we very quickly jump to him as a confident sort of spokesman. And that's what I loved about him as well, is he's always putting on a performance. Yeah. Even when he's, like, woken up, sleeping on the in the dirt floor, it takes five seconds for his performance to kick back in. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was awesome. There's something about... Um... That sort of the way that Lewis uh, hides that ruthless intent under that you know snake oil salesman mm-hmm. pitch that he does um, to the to the group of the to the masses and how quick he is to as soon as he sees it as not a worthwhile venture to just move on without even question and move on to the next opportunity. Um, I would say that the only things that don't become apparent in the first twenty minutes are obviously the religious implications which come mm. in a little bit later but are still incredibly slotted in there and if anything the turn of the century offers this sort of almost turn in in the american way or even just the western world way how we we you know we used to the only pillar of power was religion and mm. as capitalism has grown that pillar has now not only rivaled it but eventually overpasses it well, it's interesting because speaking of the time period and sort of the priorities, mm. I did make a note of looking up when Once Upon a Time in the West, the film we did episode 40. Mm. Oh, there you go. It literally episode 40, now we're doing yes. episode 80. Look there at that. Um, so that was obviously that film was made in 1968, but it takes place in the, I want to say, mid to late 
uh, 1800s. So that's sort of a perfect film in terms of the societal priorities or what people are out to do. And and one of the central story threads of that involves Mm. the acquisition of a railroad. Absolutely. A capitalistic intent. And so I feel like that's a perfect way to segue into this time period. Mm. And of course, this is based on uh, the novel Oil, which I want to see, 1927 uh, novel by Upton Sinclair. And it is based on the very real oil boom of Southern California. So these the times and dates in the film mm-hmm. matter. This is based on very real situations. Yeah, uh, I feel like Daniel Plainview is a made-up character, though, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, even from his name, it almost sounds, to an extent, kind of uh, fictionalised comical. Mm. Like, it's got a metaphor in its name's presentation. I mean, Plainview, you know, it's such yeah. a... That'd be a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could. we could be wrong. It could be a totally real person, but it's definitely got sort of a, uh, you know, more, more a uh, connotative uh, lang- you know, language device. You know, to call him plain view, like he only has a, one simplistic view. Ah. Um, look at the big brain on Zeke. Yeah, well, it's almost <laughs> like we're here to analyse this stuff, right? Um, and yeah, I think that... Um, that like that from that first pitch, you get an idea of the type of character he is. How he has his son behind him, and only gestures to his son as a form of almost trophy showing. Yeah, um, you it's automatically get that <laughs> dynamic. You know, people. He knows that people will empathize and sympathize with a man with a son. Well, what's what's interesting because like know. this obviously comes directly from the scene where he takes the baby. So. We know, as the audience, we know immediately off the bat these they are not blood related so to speak, mm. or at least, you know, that's not his authentic, it's an yeah. adopted son. So it's interesting to look at it from the perspective of, oh, every single every single opportunity he gets to use his son as some sort of exploit in his speeches, mm. he does. And this extends well into, I mean, even the later parts mm. of the film, which we'll, we'll get into what happens with him and his son sort of in a moment, but what I loved about their relationship is you you see that side of him first. We're using him as he manipulates him as like, oh well, look, you know, this is this is my son. You're right, the trophy sort of showcase yeah. and using him as part of his plot to to get. A well, it's all of part of his pitch, exactly, yeah, exactly. But then uh, when they go, when they find the Sunday family, for example, mm-hmm. and then they they start like hunting. Well, I want to say hunting. They're holding guns. They're walking around. Yeah, but they're, they're bonding as father and son, and there is an authentic relationship between the two and. He, I was so curious, what does he call his dad? And he says, like, oh, dad, dad, dad. Yeah. And when he strikes oil, he finds oil. I think it comes back to, though, um, and obviously it plays into the latter parts of the film, if you don't mind going into... Would you like to go into spoilers? Yeah, let's, let's jump into spoilers, everybody. Um, you know, obviously, he's okay to show that compassion and use it as a showcase as long as his son is useful to his... Mm his drives, his purpose, you know. He's proud of his son when his son finds oil, but it still comes back to who, who benefits from finding oil. He does, exactly. you know. Um, and, of course, when uh, one of their oil uh, wells expo- erupts, causing multiple people to get seriously hurt and his son blinded, and or, or no, deafened, 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 deafened yep. beg my pardon, uh, his usefulness gets you know, less and less to the point where he literally sends him away. Sends him away. Because he's, he's no longer a tool that will benefit him. He's more a burden. And although financially he does look after his son, he abandons his son. 
And yeah, it, well, he's got. He literally abandons him on the train. Yeah. Like, is it a stranger that like holds him back off the the kid from jumping off the train? I th- no, I think it's a paid person. I'm pretty sure. Okay, okay, it's someone there though. Yeah. But um, you're right. Either way, there's still like a real abandon. It doesn't matter what he, where he's sending the kid to. It's yeah. Like, that's <laughs> which leads to their <laughs> final conversation that. in the later parts of the film, where mm. uh, he he's got a settlement of money and but it's still it's not enough because it wasn't about losing you know not it's not about the financial part it was the emotional attachment yeah and that that's very much severed i feel like by the end especially yeah, that, that last conversation so. um while we're just mentioning him i want to quickly mention russell harvard who was the actor who i believe is actually a deaf actor in real life and that was his first role as the adult version of hw plane really that's yeah. pretty cool um so i just wanted to point that because i thought that was a really cool touch um I thought this film was really comparable. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll just finish off the point I was having with, the, yeah, the father and the son, because you're right. that I feel like the film's, film's really based around their relationship, and there's, there's a couple of relationships. So I think that's the real through line, because you see the son at first is sort of the opposite viewpoint where, you know, they strike that oil, and he's like, oh, but what about the Sunday family? How much are they going to get? Mm. I was like, oh, this is really clever how they're sort of tying these viewpoints together where it's like you have you have the adult who's very clearly motivated by what's well, it's interesting. There's the breaking bad quote. I, I thought of watching this film mm-hmm. where he says, I'm not in the meth business or the money business. I'm in the empire business, which of course talks about what, what's he in this business for. And I thought yeah. the very same thing about Daniel Plainfield. I was like, is he in it for the oil business or the money? Or is it something further than Or that? is it a legacy? Exactly. That... And I, I think that's a really good um, point to make. I think, if anything, if you tie it back to things like Breaking Bad, it becomes very clear that for Walt, he did it for himself. Mm. But, I mean, he even admits it at a point. Yeah. But it was it was about the legacy that he left because, and it's a little bit more. That, I mean, Breaking Bad obviously has five seasons to flesh that character out, whereas <laughs> this admittedly only has two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, but it's very clear that it's a legacy thing, you know. Um, it becomes less about money, and they even acknowledge the fact that he has so much money now that there are points towards the latter parts of the film where he's just doing nothing, really. Mm. He's stockaded parts of his house and he's just shooting things because he can, you know. He's sleeping in bowling alleys, his yeah. own personal... Because <laughs> it's his own personal bowling alley. He's yeah, got every yeah. right to do whatever the hell he wants. And for him, it was I think it was about power and control and legacy. And mm. I think that's why the Paul Dano character is such a challenging uh, (laughs) power play because that's what his opposition is. You know, he wants to feel like he's in power. He wants to feel like he's providing for the people. And I think when he does those pitches to the workers and stuff like that, he believes what he's saying because he believes he's creating this empire and looking after people. Mm -hmm. And He's not doing it out of selflessness. He's doing it actually out of a selfish intent because it's an intent to make him feel like without these people, he has no livelihood. Like, they have no livelihood without him. Yeah. And there's definitely that ego trip that's coming on and it's definitely contrast with the religious challenging, you know, challenging nature of Paul Dano who, who's constantly, you know, expressing his selflessness in quotations, yeah. but really it's another form of power and control just through different means. I just got to say about Paul Dano, and we've talked about it on the show, him a few times, and I love him. In, I mean, I very infamously gave Swissami Man a perfect score. Infamously you know, is correct. Infamously in, in just you were surprised by it. 
<laughs> That's all I mean by infamously. Yes. <laughs> um, and of course, I love him in Little Miss Sunshine and, and Okja and all these other films. I didn't realize he was in this film. Mm-hmm. So when he first popped on, oh yeah, well, damn it, hell yeah. I was so, like, I- I'm not surprised at his performance, but I was like, I was just so happy that he's so good in this film. Doesn't it blow you away, though? This is 2007. Yeah. This is still, like, what, six years before Swiss Army Man? Seven years before Swiss I Army Man? nine years. Yeah. Swiss Army Man and then even Little Miss, Sunshine, I'm pretty sure it was 2008, wasn't it? I think it was actually just before this. Okay, so, and, I mean, he's good in Little Miss Sunshine, but he's not the best part, I think, of Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, part of his character does not even speak, so... Yeah, yeah. I would say... There are other characters in that, like Steve Carell and stuff, that stick out a little bit more. Mm. Um, and it's definitely an ensemble performance, whereas this is very much... He is the film's... You'd be wrong to call him the antagonist. He's just another antagonist. Because well, I feel like well, they're both to an extent. Paul Down is the antagonist to our protagonist. Yes. So, like, in the most simplest, plainest of versions, I guess he is the antagonist, really. Yeah. But he's not really. Well, we, we want to root for him, because, like, he's... he's He's the guy, first off, he's the one that came to Daniel in the first place, mm-hmm. offering him money for information or whatever. But, like, again, he, you know, he runs the church and he, he does these sermons and he's well-respected and he's he's fighting for the church's money, you know. Mm-hmm. There was a promise made. What was it? $10,000 for the church. Yeah. So, I mean, even just the little things, when he asks, like, he asks, and oh, can you say this thing during your speech? And he just doesn't. He just doesn't say mm-hmm. what Paul Dano asked him to say. So... I think the interesting scene with him was when he essentially attacks his own dad at the dinner table. Yes. And he says, oh, you, you stupid old man, you let him in. And I'm thinking, I'm like, well, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair. Let's, yeah, but... um, They have an amazing, uh, like like we were talking about, it's the representation of religious power versus capitalistic power, yeah. corporate power. And the dynamic between the two as opposing forces and yet technically are aligned in the same goal of control um, mm. is what makes their dynamic. So m- both of them have such a, a level of at, at first what seems earnestness, but cynicism is under both of them. You know, they're so sinister with their intentions in a lot of ways and really are just trying to get control over a group of masses through, you know, mm. either religious or corporate intention. It sort of gets personal as well because it gets to the point where they're, they're just trying to embarrass each other. Yeah. So you have, you know, the first time he walks up and demands for his money and, and Daniel Plainford just kind of beats the crap out of him. <laughs> yeah. Shoves him in the dirt and he's like, yeah, no, he's like, my son's just been injured. He says all these things just sort of to get away with it. But he embarrasses him and then vice versa. Daniel is embarrassed when he has the to sermon, give the sermon when with, he has the, to. with the baptism and he's sort of slapped around and everything and... Of course, it gets to the ending. We might not talk about the ending just yet, but again, another form of embarrassment. Certain form of milkshaking. <laughs> oh, the milkshake. I mean, oh, do, you, awesome. do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, before we get to the ending? Yeah. Let's just say, all right, so I've talked a bit about, I mean, we've both talked about sort of their dynamic and Daniel Day-Lewis's. I mean, he's such a interesting like actor just to watch, just to see how he postures himself mm-hmm. here, how he does his facial sort of movement here and I, th- I think his character is perfectly perfectly culminated you mentioned the explosion which yes. is a great scene if you're talking about set pieces that is the Paul Thomas Anderson set piece right there across, oh, yeah. across all of his films I feel like um, it's just gorgeous the way it's all like it lights up and everything of course the sun goes deaf 
But he has that line where he looks at the guy next to him. He's like, oh, why are you so miserable? He's like, we got an ocean under our feet. And it's like the fact that his son can nearly be killed and like all these people are potentially injured or hurt and the whole thing just exploded. He's like, yeah, but this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're right. He's still looking forward. It's very plain viewish of him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, it's an iconic that shot where it's mm. just he's looking at the spout as it's being lit up and it's just... He's covered in it, and yeah, it's pretty yeah. awesome. I wanted that to be our thumbnail, but I couldn't find a good one-to-one ratio ah, of it. That's a um, shame. I think we got a thumbnail of him and his son looking at it, though. So really, <laughs> it's a little less interesting, but no, that's all right. It it would do. Um, let's see. The other thing I wanted to talk about. Well, first off, before he gets his baptism, uh, baptism. That's the one. He meets with this guy who claims to be his uh, stepbrother or a half yes. brother. Yes. Yeah. And. This is the interesting thing, because if, if the film wanted us to hate this guy, like, oh, look, he's being a capitalist and he's an opportunist and he, he's, like, destroying these people's, like, the families and livelihoods and all this stuff, I feel like if the film really wanted us to hate him that much, they wouldn't have added this character who, turns out, is sort of just after him, really. Well, he's, he's a person trying to kind of leech off yeah, exactly. the, the fortune. But at the end of the day, the only reason he takes in this half-brother is because he's now with the deaf son, you know, on the verge of abandoning the, mm. the deaf son. So he needs a new tool of empathy. And a brotherly business sounds a lot better than a guy just selfishly capitalising. Yeah. I think it was... It's an example of... Um, and even the son almost recognises it in the moment... He yeah. recognizes that he's going to get replaced with this this half brother character, and then that Sets becomes very bottom fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crazy and, little shit. Well, because he understands he's about to be mm. replaced, and yep. I think that's comes back to the manipulative character. So I still think it does because when he eventually finds out that this guy was more more so more or less in potentially impersonating a half brother rather than actually being biologically related, he kills him. Mm. without question yeah it's and little empathy so i think that there's definitely a hatred there just because a person wants to capitalize off of a guy who is already very successful and very rich yeah um but that's the thing speaks to well it speaks to technically what happens to other people trying to manipulate daniel Mm. well i feel i feel like there's that aspect of when i'm watching the film as a viewer i'm like oh well you know he's trying to leech off my protagonist daniel how dare he and yeah, even though Daniel, you can say a lot of things about it, I feel like if the film want, really wanted you to hate him, he wouldn't have added that character. Maybe he was a, like a legitimate half-brother that he that Daniel ends up screwing over or something. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was an interesting sort of touch to, to, to gray the lines, but this leads into the scene that I really wanted to talk about. And this might have been my highlight scene, bar one other scene, mm-hmm. but it's a scene with, um, I believe it's Mr. Brandy. Let me try and find... Oh yeah, with the... The, the old, the nice old man. <laughs> the, the, who doesn't want to sell off his land. Yep. So there's sort of this, uh, back and forth and not directly. This is the first time that that, that you met face to face. And yeah, he wants to buy the property so he can, you know, put essentially tunnels directly through, uh, to save, transfer the oil. Exactly. It would save him a lot of money and a lot of time and effort and stuff. And what's interesting is that number one, he calls him on his shit immediately as in, he, he kicks him away, essentially, off the floor. Yeah. And even though Daniel's trying to put this performance back on, like, very, very quickly, he's like, oh, I'm the oil guy. He sees Brackville, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I heard the rumors. I know what you're trying to do. And 
yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you do it. Uh, he doesn't want the money. He's like, I'll let you do it if you get the baptism or if you go to church. And I just thought that was such a cool little character moment of not everyone's about the money. It's about morals. And again, the religious connotation that you're talking about, mm-hmm. it's such a strong part of this film. And I just love that character. We well, and the fact that he's an older man too, yeah. it's sort of a reflection of a time gone by, whereas the, you know, it's the past versus the present. Um, but at the end of the day, it all is cultivated in that final scene between Dano yeah. and, and Day Lewis, how Dano is coming to ask for more money and, and Lewis is sort of at his snapping point. He's kind of a sickly, <laughs> he's getting quite sickly. He's quite, you know, he's been overindulgent. He really, at this point has got his empire, but he's alone and he's doing nothing but, yeah, passing yeah. out in the middle of bowling alleys. He's descended into madness at this point. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Like, his his greed has got him to this point of isolation, but sure, yeah, he has a legacy and all this money, but what for? And this person comes along asking for a handout, and he essentially just sort of snaps and, ignore, like, calls, it, calls him on his <laughs> bullshit, and that leads to one of the best uses of a milkshake in a scene. <laughs> uh, even if it's for suggestion. <laughs> I just thought the camera follows because I was watching the framing very carefully in the yeah. scene. Um, even like when when um, Paul Dano walks in, we don't know it's him. And again, at this point in the film, we've passed like I'd say sixteen years. Yes. So it's like I wasn't even sure are they going to recast him? Are they just going to not have him? And it's like no, he can't. He comes in and like leans into frame, and you're like, oh, okay, it's Paul Dano. He's still here. Uh, but then even the way the camera follows him is he's doing his milkshake analogy. Yes. <laughs> just I love those little details of the camera for sure. Yeah, it's but, a pretty insane scene. But it comes back to, at the end of the day, it's almost like Dano gets to the point where he acknowledges that he was just doing all of this for power, mm. to manipulate the system. Well, he gets re-embarrassed. He has to yeah. do his omission of like, oh, I do not believe... I don't remember the exact quote, but he's, you know, I do not believe in my faith or whatever he says. <laughs> um, and then he dies. <laughs> gets caved in with a bowling, bowling pin. He gets destroyed. It's pretty cool. It's really cool. And it's funny because I read... So, friend of the show, Jesse Newell, I'm going to butcher the quote. He did an Instagram, or not an Instagram, Jesus, a letterbox review of the film and said something like, oh, I didn't quite get the title. Like, for the first two hours, 15 minutes, like, oh, shouldn't this be called There Will Be Oil or something like that? And then the last 15 minutes, he's like, oh, I get it now. (laughs) So, because of that review, I I didn't have it spoiled because I didn't, I didn't, I imagined like something bigger. I didn't realize it was going to be very personal, belted to the head with a bowling ball. It's pretty great, though. It was great. Just, like, the look of his head caved in and the, uh, I'm finished. Is that what he says? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um... Great character. Would you like to bridge into highlight scenes? Um... Got anything else yeah, you'd like to add? Yeah, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's give a quick shout-out to the cinematographer. I made a note. I mean, we talked about him a bit last week. Robert Elswit, who shot yes. most of, uh... Gets two weeks in a row. Films. Gets hmm? two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. There he goes. He's, he's shot films, but... I think he also shot Punch Drug Love, if I'm not mistaken. I think Paul Thomas Anderson shot Phantom Fred himself, though, which I thought was very interesting. But um, he's a very common cinematographer for that. So just a little quick shout-out there. Um, but, yeah, all right. Let's. right. What's your highlight scene, Zeke, for There Will Be Blood? It's got to be the sermon baptism scene. That oh, whole one-shot closing in. Yep, yep. And just the... The reversal of power after up until this point, you know, Plainview has pretty much essentially gotten his way the whole time. You know, he's had pushing and prodding, but 
just that full reversal, and it's definitely the definition of the low point in a hero's journey, I guess. Um, <laughs> in our hero, for sure, yeah. In quotations. Um, yeah, but I loved it. I loved it. I love Dano's performance in it as he's screaming at him. Like, it's it's pretty incredible. It's amazing you use that scene because I have a very similar highlight okay. scene. Okay. So my highlight scene is the sermon prior to that. <laughs> so this is much earlier in the film where uh, Daniel comes to sort of look in and Paul Daniel Paul Dano's doing his sermon and he goes up to the girl and he, he sort of extracts the demon out of her. And I thought, I mean, it's very similar to the scene you're using, but <laughs> there's slight differences. I mean, I love the way the camera's using that where we're almost the demon at a certain point. By the time he banishes it, and he's, you know, he's doing the perform Again, a performance. It's all about performance, isn't it? It relates to Daniel's character, mm. Daniel Day-Lewis's character, how they're both very performative beings, but just in different contexts. And everyone, like, he banishes the, the devil, the demon outside. Like, we, this is when the framing, we see the doors of the church. So it's almost like we're getting thrown out from an audience perspective. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a very one-shot, one-take sort of situation. So that sh- A lot of the shirt se- uh, church sequences are just mm. they're just incredible. And um, Paul Dano. Yeah. Paul Dano, my boy. This is, he's, ah, he's too good. Well, that's my end of the I guess movie. that uh, he's too good. <laughs> it is a magnificent film, and probably the best film. I, th- in my opinion, I think maybe the best film of the two thousands. That's a that's a popular opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely up there for sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can catch There Will Be Blood on multiple uh, different countries on Netflix. Gotcha. Um, I think in Canada, I think I watched it. Um, you can get it on Stan if you're an Australian boy. So that's no how worries. I saw it last night. Well, there will be there will be blood is out in wide release, and I hope you enjoyed our Paul Thomas Anderson director's corner. Yeah, most of his films didn't make any didn't make a profit back. That's crazy. It, you and yet he's a critical darling, I guess. Yep, exactly. Over a, a blockbuster, honey. I got some numbers here. So this film. This was probably his most successful film at the box office with a $25 million budget made $76 million at the box office. Okay. Um, but some of his other films, so Inherent Vice, Punch Drug Love, which is weird because Adam Sandler's in it, Heart 8, and The Master, and Phantom Thread, all lost money. Their box office... Phantom were... Thread would be a hard sell, I think, if I saw a trailer for it. I agree. I feel like Day- Daniel Day-Lewis would have been a sell, but... I'm surprised mm. to uh, punch drug love just because Adam Sandler, 2002. Yeah, that's peak Adam Sandler too. Yeah, yeah, that's shocking. Mr. Deeds, 51st uh, dates. Yeah, that sort of time. Mr. Deeds, man, that's a guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, I guess it's time for us to bridge into what's new in cinemas. And right. are we still doing uh, streaming platforms? Yeah, buddy? I'm as throughout each week, I'm slowly ironing them out. Nice. I'm being very picky now with the with the streaming. So I'm I'm pretty much just going with very select options so okay uh, on Netflix this week Sorry to Bother You comes out today really so if you want to rewatch Sorry to Bother You it's out it's, so uh, good. that's a great film it is a great film uh, and coming this Saturday you have Freddy vs. Jason Rockstar Little Fockers and Forrest Gump so uh, interesting interesting range of films yeah I'll say that <laughs> Little Fockers and, and Forrest Gump in the same sentence fair enough I'll give you that uh, on Stan The Trip to Greece which sees funny men Steve Kogan and Rob Brydon travel to restaurants, hotels, and ancient landmarks in Greece. I believe this is an ongoing documentary series with two comedians sort of traveling around the world. Mm. It looked good. I saw a trailer for oh, it. Oh, okay, cool. 
Yeah. I like those ones where they just do, like, actors who are just hanging out. They're kind of fun. Yeah, it definitely seems like that vibe. So, if yeah, if you're into that, that is coming to stand this week. I can't remember which day, but mm-hmm. yeah, just hold out for it. On Disney+, Plus, you've got 2018's 27 Dresses, not Phantom Fred, okay. and, um, and a new improvised sitcom called Muppets Now, and you guessed it, it's to do with the Muppets. Nice. So, I guess they're back. Uh, if you're looking for some classics, uh, this is good. The, the So, when we did Train Spotting, Zeke, you talked to us, or you talked to me about which films do we want to see in cinemas, like, re-released yes. in this time. And we are getting some bangers. So, in a couple of weeks, we're getting The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. This is the one that I said specifically. That's the one I want to see. Yep. So, I'm very excited about that. This week, Jackie Brown, the entire Back to the Future trilogy on Thursday... I believe at uh, so that's at Hoyt's this Thursday. If you want to see the entire Back to the Future, I think I guess they're back to back to back screenings. Oof, that'd be cool. Eh? I'll watch the first one. I could do the f- yeah, probably the first one. I don't know if I could do three movies in one hit. Nah, that's fair enough. I don't again. I don't know if they're in the same like mm. DCP file or if they're, they're different <laughs> screenings. I don't know what the deal is, but anyway, that's all on Thursday. Oh, and Aliens, so the sequel. Yep, plural Aliens, uh, and next Monday, and I know. Our next podcast will be out next Monday, but I wanted to give everyone a head start. Yeah. They wanted to pre-order these tickets. A double screening of The Shining and an orange, a Clockwork Orange at Luna next Monday the 3rd. Wow. That is very tempting. Yes. I think I could probably... It's a shame you can't... I wonder if you can pick just to go to one. Yeah. Because I would like to just pick the a Clockwork Orange one. Because that's like a four, four and a half hour screen. Yeah. <laughs> no thanks, I'm good. <laughs> I would absolutely watch a Clockwork Orange on the on the big screen. Coming new to cinemas, only two films. Okay. So Still two. Just two. So 23 Walks, which is a couple in their 60s, get to know each other over the course of a year worth of dog walks. Uh, I saw the trailer for this when I went to watch Booksellers. It doesn't look very good. Doesn't sound like I, it. Very yeah, good. <laughs> I just I want to be up front. The uh, <laughs> trailer was not very well made, so I, I don't know what that spells for the actual film itself uh this next one i'm gonna probably stuff up the name litigant litigant mm-hmm. there's a t at the end there i believe it's a horror film it's season or maybe it's just a drama sees a mother a single mother balancing taking care of her mother during the fight against cancer and dealing with a corruption scandal at work interesting i guess that's a drama that sounds like a drama that's not a horror. Horror. <laughs> i don't know where i got that from <laughs> no worries well but that's it none of those are all watching next next week on the show but jake <laughs> What are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching Baby Teeth. Is this a style? I was going for rat's tails. You look like a different person. What have you done with my daughter? I killed her. <laughs> oh my God. <clears throat> what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You make a habit of befriending girls that are significantly younger than yourself. Oh my God. Mila's obsessed with that boy. She's a smart girl. Mila? That boy has problems! So do I! What are you looking at? Piss off! When a seriously ill teenager falls for a small-time drug dealer, her parents disapprove. However, she soon finds a new lust for life in her blossoming romance. Oh, this film. is directed by Shannon Murphy. Yeah. It's an Australian film. Fellow Australian film. Australian cast. I'm, I'm excited for this. Yeah. This won the uh, Golden Lion and the Grand Jury Prize. This kind of won the gold. Was it up? Or oh, nominations. Jo- it was nominated for right. it. Joker. Beg Joker my pardon. Won the Golden Lion. But it got nominated. So that's what matters. That's that's, that's still very impressive. So. Um, so uh, let's I'm, see if everyone in Perth. Oh, let's all go to afters. 
Let's see if what yeah. they're talking about is correct. Because <laughs> this is the prime example right here. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone come join us exactly. for the screening. Yeah. Um, so this this started playing at Luna last week. It's getting high praise. What was the... 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's good. But until then... <laughs> we'll be... <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. You, you, for... you make it funny. You make it funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Baby Teeth.